Yes. <laughs> well, take your Bibles with me and open up this morning to Matthew chapter 22 to start this morning. Continuing in our series, Defending Your Faith, Expository Apologetics, Answering Objections with the Power of the Word as we're working our way through Cody Bacham's book. And again, I've got some extra copies on the table up front if you need a copy and would like to have a copy to read while we're going through this. This week and in the next couple of weeks, we're actually looking at chapter six and chapter seven, uh, beginning a study of the Ten Commandments. And then actually we'll work our way through each of the Ten Commandments one at a time. Uh, going through and looking at what the commandment tells us, how Christ actually applies the commandments and takes them even deeper than what we read uh, in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy to show that the commandments of God are given specifically not just to conform outward behavior, but to deal with the heart motives behind why we do what we do. And we're going to look at that also within the framework of Christian ethics and apologetics using the law to bring to light the need for the gospel. And we do have to keep in mind, Vody writes, that whatever we do must be rooted in the power, simplicity, and authority of Scripture. We're using an outside authority while those who are questioning the Bible are relying on their own reasoning. We've got to establish that our authority in anything that we do, especially in apologetic and evangelical conversations, is rooted in the Scripture. I love this. You can see that John MacArthur has a history of doing this whenever he is interviewed on a news show when he used to appear on Larry King Live and he would get asked questions. He always made it a point to state right at the first that he was arguing from Scripture, that it was not his opinion, but it's what the Bible says, establishing then that the Bible is the authority in the discussion. Of course, that means that God who gave us his word is the authority, and that's what nobody likes they don't want the Bible as the authority and will try to argue against the scripture being the authority. And really, you only have two choices. Either God and his word are the authority or you're setting yourself up as your own authority. And even if you're quoting what somebody else is saying, you're still relying on your reasoning and rationale to make an argument. So you've made an authority out of yourself instead of bowing in submission to the authority of God and his word. Now, it also helps us in apologetic conversations when we use the law, if there is an easy way to remember these things, that there is a normal flow of conversation so that we can work this into everyday conversations. The reality is not every discussion and not even every apologetic discussion needs to be a debate. It needs to be a discussion. And there is a big difference between discipleship, disciple making, discussion, teaching, and debate. There is a place for debate when it's done correctly, but too much of what's going on today uh, is not even debate. It's just people arguing, uh, just people stating that they're right and they're going to attack you personally if you disagree with them. And they're not even going to attack your argument. They're just going to attack you. Uh, if you disagree with them, you're a bad person. You're bigoted and prejudiced and evil and racist and all these other kinds of things. So it comes to the point that we're not actually debating these things anymore, and we're not even discussing them anymore. We're just pushing an agenda that is a belief in our own personal opinion. We also have to remember, Vody writes, that in these discussions, we are not scolding people who are inferior to us. We are helping people who are standing exactly where we once stood. We're talking to people 
who are lost, who are who are confused about what the word of God teaches. And we need to realize we are no better than they are. And outside of the grace of God, we would still be where they are. So it's not a matter that God said, oh, I think I like you and you can handle this. You're smart. You're good looking. So I'm going to open your eyes. No, God's purpose of election is according to the good pleasure of his will. And the Bible is clear. He did not choose us for anything he saw in us. He chose us for his own pleasure, for his own purposes. So we don't come at this and say, well, God chose me. He must not have chosen you. No, that's not how we discuss predestination or election. We need to understand we're not scolding people who are inferior to us. We're helping people. We're standing exactly where we once stood. So we're going to start then with the Ten Commandments as a summary of God's law. We're going to look at, at how Jesus defined the law and how he applied the law. And we understand in looking at the Ten Commandments, there are laws that govern our relationship with God and laws that pertain to our relationship with other people. When we look at this, there is a vertical aspect and those are the first four commandments that tell us how we relate to God. And then the, the number five through 10 tell us how we relate to other people, starting with our own family, with honor your father and mother. And then the things that we need to not be doing to other people, like lying to them, committing adultery with them, murdering them, coveting what is theirs. And we see that those laws then pertain to those relationships and they're not as we as we'll go through each one of them it's not just a do not everybody says well the law is just do not do not do not do not there's a whole lot in those commandments that is not just do not because if you're not doing something you need to be doing something else uh, paul's illustration in ephesians and colossians is if you're going to put off these things you need to put on these things it's not enough just to not do something there's something that we need to do at its, at its heart, the law drives us then to the need for righteousness. Now, when we look at it, we look at a simple summary of the Ten Commandments, and I, I hope you've memorized the Ten Commandments. I hope you know the Ten Commandments. Uh, used to, that was taught, and that was memorized, along with the Lord's Prayer and several other things, uh, learning the books of the Bible, having Bible drills, knowing where things are in the Scripture and what the Bible says. That first four, the vertical law, summarized quite simply, have no other gods except for God, have no idols, don't profane the Lord's name, and remember the Sabbath. The horizontal commands, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Now, we'll, as we go through this, we'll realize that for a while, do not murder was translated, thou shalt not kill. And so people thought it was wrong to kill at any point ever. And that gave birth to an idea of pacifism. No, the word is murder. Uh, the other funny thing is that there was a version of the King James Bible that was printed one year, and it was called uh, the, the Seventh Commandment Bible. And you can look that up because they left out the word not in the commandment, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> Wait a minute. What is the Bible allowing here? Stop. No. It's got to make sure that we include all the words, that we understand what the words mean when we're talking about commandments. Now in Matthew 22, in verses 35 through 40, Jesus sums up for us the law and he sums it up this way. One of them, a teacher, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So all of these laws are summed up in two. 
Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you have to realize God understands how much we love ourselves because that's the standard of love that he tells us we're supposed to love others with. Love others as much as you love yourself. Uh, he doesn't say there, by the way, it's wrong to love yourself, but just don't love yourself more than you're loving other people. That's the standard. We love God with everything we are, and we love our neighbor as ourself. That leads to the question, who's our neighbor? Because we immediately want to know who we don't have to love. And of course, the parable that Jesus teaches is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the person who would have been the mortal enemy of anybody who was listening to the parable is actually part of the hero of the story. Who is your neighbor? And the answer is everybody. That's see, look, we're neighbors. That's I, I, neighbor, neighbor with neighbors. Yeah, no, we are neighbors. That's how it works. We need to understand that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we esteem others as better than ourselves. And this is the summary of the law. In other words, if you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to have no other gods before him. You're not going to worship idols. You are not going to profane his name, and you're going to honor what he says to honor. And then if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, you're not going to be killing them, lying to them, coveting what is theirs. So these things govern how we relate to one another. Again, those first four apply to loving the Lord with all we are. And we learn from the scripture that obedience to the law of God is the same thing as loving God. Obedience and love are equated. First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God. Here, John is by the Holy Spirit defining for us what loving God looks like. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And Jesus said it in John 14, 15, didn't he? If you love me, do whatever you want and just profess you love me with all your heart. No, if you love me, keep my commandments. The outworking of love for God is a desire to please him and the way to please him is to obey him. So loving God is obeying God. The last six then relating to loving our neighbor, Paul writes this in Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the ultimate expression of the law. And that sounds foreign to us because we have been taught about a kind of love that is not biblical love. It's not scriptural love. We see love as a warm and fuzzy emotion, as, a, as something we can fall into and fall out of. No, love, biblically, is a willful choice. It's a decision on how we're going to relate to someone else. Love is a choice. So when we decide to love we are acting then in obedience to the word of God. And that's why obedience is coupled with love throughout the scripture. If you say, well, I just don't love you anymore. Well, that's because you've decided not to. Because love is not just a feeling. That means you can love people that irritate you. And you know this if you've been married more than two years, right? You know this. You can love people who irritate you. You can love people. And in the course of uh, relationship counseling and marriage counseling, I tell couples all the time, there are times that you will love each other, but you will not like each other. And if that's the case, repent. Uh, we need to work through that because you really should like each other if you're married to each other, especially. But we need to be loving each other. We need to be obedient to the word of God. We need to be yielding our will to what his word tells us to do. And that's why we see that love within the home is a command. When the instructions are given to the husband in Ephesians 5, he's told three times, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. 
love your wives. Apparently that's hard for us to do, but we have to remember we have to love our wives. So that is a command that then works its way out in obedience to what God has told us. So again, the law calls us to righteousness and in calling us to righteousness, the law also proves that we have none outside of Christ. The righteousness we need is the righteousness of Christ. In and of ourselves, the law condemns us. The law shows us that we can't be saved by law keeping because we can't keep the law. There's not a justification or salvation found in obedience because we can't be obedient. The book of James tells us if you've broken one law, you've broken the whole law. If you've broken one law, you're a lawbreaker. Well, how many of us have broken one law? I wish it was just one, right? We break law. We break God's law all the time. We are born lawbreakers. And the law condemns us. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, starting in verse 10, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in order that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. We are not justified by law keeping. Now, the question immediately arises, well, what is the law for then? And is there a place for the law in the life of a believer? Paul goes on in Galatians 3, says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming of faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we understand then what the law is, what the law means, that the law has a purpose. It drives us to Christ and shows us our sinfulness and our need for righteousness. But some have taken that to a degree that the law now does not apply to us once we're saved. That the law drives us to Christ and then drops us off there and leaves us alone for the rest of eternity. That the law has no role in the life of the believer. If we've been saved by faith, it's all just faith. There's no more need for the law. Now, others will ask, and this is especially in apologetic conversations, others will ask why we keep some of the commandments, but not all of them. You will have this happen. If you do any kind of street preaching or witnessing or any kind of apologetic conversation, eventually somebody's going to ask you, well, if you believe the Bible, do you eat shrimp? And I say, hallelujah, do I eat shrimp? And I, I am so free of the old covenant, I eat it wrapped in bacon. Hallelujah with the jalapeno and some jack cheese. Oh my goodness. Oh, I need breakfast again. Second breakfast. Oh, there you go. Well, we realize that there are laws that they will try to throw at us and say, why don't you keep these laws? Why do you pick and choose? Now, what's funny, they're picking and choosing because they're usually mad at you because when you say you believe the Bible, they understand the Bible says there's things they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. And so they want to pick and choose and they don't want to have to be obedient to the law of God either. So is it true that the New Testament teaches that we are not under the law, but under grace? Yes. Romans 6, 14 says that it says we are not under the law. We are under grace. But we need to understand what that means. 
before we can get into the basics of the Ten Commandments, we need to understand how we can read and apply the law of God and what application it has to our life as believers. Uh, Bodhi writes about this historically in the Reformed tradition. This is called the threefold division of the law, what the uses of the law are. So there's not just one type of law in the Old Testament. There's actually three kinds of law, three categories of law. And this is this is true even if we look at the laws of our land. There are federal laws. There are state laws. There are county laws. There are city laws. There are HOA laws. <laughs> yeah, you get all of these different kinds of variations of different kind of law that deal with different aspects and areas of our life. When we come to the scripture, we have to understand there are three types of law that are presented to us in the scripture. And most of the time... That distinction is clear. Sometimes it's not so clear. When we look at the types of law, sometimes we have to ask, well, what type is that? And the answer to that then will give us the answer to how that applies to us. We're at a disadvantage today because for decades it has been taught in evangelical churches that the Old Testament does not apply to the New Testament church. I have known some pastors, known of some pastors who will not preach out of the Old Testament because we're a New Testament church and we've heard it work its way out. Andy Stanley said it. We have to unhitch Jesus in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Well, you can't cut God's word in half. It doesn't work that way. All scripture is given by God and it is God breathed and it is profitable. So what we have to understand is there is a perpetuity of God's moral law. That God's law is God's law, and God does not change. The question is then, does his law change? And the answer is, no, it doesn't change, but the type of law tells us how that law applies. The church today defines sin in terms of pragmatism. What works and what doesn't work. What gives you the result in your life that you want. Very pragmatic. The end justifies the means. Instead, we need to understand that without the law of God, there is no way to define what sin is. That's why the law was given, so that we could define sin. We also need to be reminded that while we're not under the law as a means of salvation, Paul tells Timothy that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, meaning we need to understand and use the law rightly because there is a place for the law in the life of the believer. The law is useful and it's even necessary in our daily lives. Part of the Great Commission is to make disciples by teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. Well, if Jesus has given us commandments, then we need to be learning what those are and learning to do those. Now, here's where we have to correct where generations have been wrong. Not all churches, but many churches. They think that Jesus telling us that we need to learn all things that I commanded you just refers to what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. But all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Do you think Jesus wasn't in the Old Testament? And there are people who will say, well, yes, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger and fire. And then loving, merciful Jesus showed up. And now we have a new depiction and version of God. No, God is God and he doesn't change. And in fact, if you look at the burning bush, if you look at what Isaiah saw in the temple, if you see the visions of God, if you see Abraham meeting with God, coming down and walking with him and talking to him, all of those physical representations that we see of God in the Bible throughout all of the scripture is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So if we want to think that the God of the Bible was angry, then guess what? Jesus was angry. And by the way, if you think that only the God of the Old Testament was angry, wait till Jesus comes back and you don't know him. 
then you're going to see angry Jesus. And there's not going to be a question about why he is judging like he is judging. Jesus is God in the Old and the New Testament. The heresy that divides him between the Testaments is a heresy called Martianism. We take God and we make him different. That branches out from modalism and from an, an, a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of God and the person of Christ. And all of that's rooted in heresy. So if anybody ever tells you the God of the Old Testament was different, rebuke them lovingly and firmly. God is God and he does not change. He cannot change. If God could change, he's not God because there would be something to improve. God doesn't change. So that means that the Old Testament does not have to be repeated in the New Testament in order to be included in all I commanded you. I've heard this taught too, that the only things from the Old Testament that apply to the life of a believer are if Jesus or the disciples, the apostles, repeated something from the Old Testament in the New. Again, we've made such a division between the Old and the New that we've completely missed the point that what Jesus tells us throughout his word is his word and includes what he has commanded us. So those ask then, well, what if the Old Covenant's gone? And the Old Covenant is gone. The Old Covenant is not the same thing as the Old Testament. If the Old Covenant is gone, doesn't that mean then that we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? Are they no longer enforced? And there are people preaching that today. The, the, the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore to anyone because the Old Covenant is gone. Well, if the law is based on who God is and God never changes, then here's what we have to understand about the law. The law never changes either. The law says what it means. It means what it says. And so we then have to look and see what type of law is it. I, I've broken this out to say that we have to realize that the law has symbols and it has standards. The old covenant was full of symbols and standards. What did the symbols point to? What did the shadows find as their substance? All of the symbols of the Old Testament point us to Christ. They're fulfilled in him. And this goes just, this is beyond law. This is, this is the Passover lamb. All of these things that point us from the Old Testament to the fulfillment in the new when Christ has come. The shadows find their substance in Christ. They show us that he is the spotless lamb of God. He lived a perfect life of obedience and how he's going to redeem his people. These symbols were carried out in the old covenant in day-to-day -day life through things like the cleanliness and the dietary laws. You could eat this, but not eat that. One thing is clean, another thing is not unclean, or is unclean. And the symbols point to our need to be cleansed from sin. And the only way to have that happen is by the blood of Christ, by faith in Jesus. In the new covenant, we see that Christ fulfills these symbols. But remember, there are symbols and there are standards. The old covenant is full of laws that give us standards for living. And those standards are based on the character of God, the nature of God. This is why I think there's a lot of confusion about the law of God and its use in the life of a believer, because most people today aren't being taught about the nature and the attributes and the character of who God is. If the law reveals to us who he is, how we relate to him and how we love him and how we obey him depends on our understanding of his nature and his character. The standards that were given in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, are the same standards that are behind the laws that Jesus gives us. Jesus gave us commands. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. Jesus tells us, do this and don't do this. He gave us laws to obey. Well, what are the standards behind the law? What is the reason that the law is there? Why did God say, for example, 
do not bear false witness. If we trace it back by understanding that all of the law of God is rooted in the character of God, why would we be told not to bear false witness? Because what does Jesus say about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, we're told in the New Testament, it is impossible for God to lie. Not that he can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because he is truth. So to lie would be to act contrary to who God is. We find then that law rooted in the character of God. Now, is that law reinforced in the New Testament? It is. Absolutely. We're told not to lie to one another multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus said it. Paul wrote it. It's in several of his epistles. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Paul said, speak the truth to one another in love. We're not to be lying to one another. But the reason behind the law is what we need to look for. We don't need to ask if a law is repeated from the Old Testament to the New. We need to ask of any law that we read in the Bible, what does this law tell us about who God is? And to act contrary to that law is to violate the character of God. So when we say we are under grace and not under the law, when we affirm that the old covenant is gone, we understand that in the new covenant, the conditions have been met. They've been fulfilled by Christ. We've been given <laughs> grace. And here is the wonderful news about grace. Grace opens our eyes to the truth that the law is about more than just outward behavior. The law does not just condemn us outside of Christ as being unrighteous. Grace opens our eyes to what the law really truly means. It reveals to us the character and nature of God and teaches us how to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. The law teaches us how to love Jesus and how to love each other. Now, immediately, if you say that we as Christians have to obey the law of God, people say, well, you're a legalist. Define your terms. What does legalism really mean? Legalism means I can earn salvation from God by obeying his word that I can perfectly keep his word and be saved as a result of my actions. That's actually what legalism is. Legalism is not telling people you need to obey the word of God. That's not legalism or Jesus was a legalist because he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So what are the three types of law? The first and the most significant kind of law is referred to as the moral law. And this, the, the, the 10 commandments fall into this category. These type of law are binding on all people everywhere for all time. They reflect the character and the nature of God most clearly for us. The second London Baptist Confession says the moral law ever binds to obedience everyone, justified people as well as others, and not only out of regard for the matter contained in it, but also out of respect for the authority of God, the creator who gave the law. Nor does Christ in the gospel dissolve this law in any way, but he considerably strengthens our obligation to obey it. These are commandments that from the, the word of God can be applied to anybody anywhere, at any time since creation. And we see these enforced even before it was put on a tablet, right? Cain killed Abel. He murdered his brother. He shouldn't have done that. There was judgment and consequence because of that. Why? Because to do that was to act contrary to the nature of God and to the law of God written on the hearts of mankind. So the moral law reveals the demands of God upon all people, not just those in Israel, not just those in the Old Testament. These laws have been the basis upon which God judges mankind from the beginning. So again, it applies to Christians and non-Christians alike. The one standard of righteousness is the very nature and being of God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes us even deeper into the law than that by moving it beyond what we do outwardly and telling us that it's a matter of our heart motive. We'll get into that as we study the commandments. 
As we look more closely at where we find the moral law, we'll do that in lessons to come, but it is usually pretty clear when we read a law how it is to be applied. The second type of law is the ceremonial law. These laws were given voting rights specifically to Israel for the express purpose of showing them what was holy in terms of worship. And when we look at these, we have the the clean and the unclean, don't eat this, do eat this. It was to distinguish those people in Israel as God's people living under his law for them. Now, what did God tell Peter when Peter had the vision before he went to Cornelius? A sheep was lured with all sorts of animals in it. God told him, rise, kill, and eat. What did Peter say? Them's unclean. Peter was not a Cajun. Cajuns will eat anything. Them's unclean. We can't eat that. I can't do that, Lord. That's that's not clean. And, And God told him again. Rise, kill, and eat. What I have made is not unclean. Now, did God just contradict himself? Because in the Old Testament, he said these things were unclean. For Israel, in that point in time, for the purpose of righteousness and holiness and being a separate people, there were things designated clean and unclean. But in and of themselves, by their very nature, if God made it, it's clean. Now, of course, the example goes further than animals because that actually is not even about the animals. He's telling Peter... He's about to tell Peter to go and to preach Cornelius's house. And according to the ceremonial law, Peter couldn't even go in his house. But he was being sent by God to go into his house and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family as he came and preached and they believed. Peter, it dawned on him and he understood then that he could not say that Cornelius was unclean because Cornelius was a Gentile. He understood that the gospel was for Jew and Gentile alike. Again, the second London Confession says God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several types of ordinances. These ordinances were partly about their worship, and in them Christ was prefigured along with his attributes and qualities, his actions, his sufferings, and his benefits. These ordinances also gave instruction about different moral duties. All of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the time of Reformation when Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, and the only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for this end, canceled them and took them away. Christ kept and fulfilled all of that law perfectly when we could not. He kept it all for us. And that's the basis then of our justification by faith. The ceremonial laws taught Israel how to worship and how not to worship God. And that's especially true in the commandments not to participate in pagan practices. These laws are an application of the moral law So while not binding on anyone today, they do demonstrate the importance of holiness and acceptable worship. That's why we can go to the holiness code given to us in the book of Leviticus, and we can find that, marry that to the book of Hebrews that explains it so well, and we can see what God means by what he says and how that should apply to us today. The third type of law is the civil law or the judicial law of Israel, and these were laws that governed everyday life within the nation of Israel. The second line of confession states to the people of Israel, he also gave sundry judicial laws, which expired when they ceased to be a nation. These are not binding on anyone now by virtue of their being part of the laws of that nation, but their general equity continue to be applicable in modern times. And this is the example Vody gives. There are laws in England that are different from the laws in the United States, but they cover the same thing. If you try to apply American traffic laws in England, you're going the wrong way. It doesn't work that way. Their laws, their system is different. That's one example that he gives. It's impossible to follow both laws at the same time. They have an application within a specific set of circumstances 
or within a specific nation. So again, at times, while it's not clear which type of law we're talking about, we need to carefully use scripture on scripture to try to discern. And the, the first question always to ask about a law is not what does this mean I should do? The first question we need to ask in time we read the law of God is what does this tell me about God? What does this reveal about his nature and his character? Because that's what's behind why the law was given. Then we need to carefully discern how do we apply that law or does that law even still apply to us? And that's why the, the Second London Confession and the Westminster Confession both say there are laws that will tell us something. And while the law may not apply to us today, there's a reason behind the law that does still apply. And it relates to God's holiness and God's character and God's nature. So in the weeks to come, we're going to look more closely at where we can find clear examples of each of these types of law. And as I said, we'll begin going through the Ten Commandments one by one to see how the scripture as a whole provides commentary on itself to tell us what those commandments mean and how they're to be applied and how they're to be obeyed in our lives. Again, going past just outward behavior down to the very motives. Now, when we do this, again, I understand there are some people who say, well, the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore. Well, Jesus quoted enough of them that I think they still apply. He preached it as if it did apply. And some say, well, he fulfilled it. Yes, he did. And now by grace, guess what he gives us the power to do? To keep it. That's the good news about grace working with the law. Before grace, we couldn't keep the law. We didn't want to keep the law. And if we didn't want to keep the law, it was for the wrong reasons. Because whatever's not of faith is sin. But now because of grace... We see the law, we can understand the law, and we can obey the law. We can live in a manner that is pleasing to God. What that really tells us is that the grace of God opens the door for us being able to love God. And if you want to know how to love him, you need to understand his character and his nature, his attributes, what is pleasing to him. And we learn that from the law. So the law, while we will use that in evangelism and apologetics to show people that they are under the curse of the law, that doesn't mean that's the only use of the law. And we'll cover that as well. We do preach the law to the lost to demonstrate their need. you got to have the bad news to get the good news. But we also need to be preaching the law to one another because if we're obedient to Christ and if we're discipling one another, we need to be teaching one another to do all the things that Christ has commanded us to do. Now, that sounds like it's all about do this, don't do this, and you have a list. But again, we'll get into it. It's more than that. It's a motive, a heart motive of wanting to be pleasing to God. Uh, Paul, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a clear conscience, and from a sincere faith. The commandment is given to drive us to Christ, to condemn us and show us we're cursed. And then once we've come to Christ, the purpose of the commandment is love so that we can have a clear conscience in our relationship with God and one another, a sincere faith in Christ, and so that we can pursue what is pleasing to our heavenly Father. As we go through that, then we're going to look at ways to apply that to expository apologetics, to everyday conversations, how we can talk about the word of God, not just the law, but the word of God, the whole counsel of the word of God and what that means for us in our daily life. The word really is necessary for us, isn't it? It's not just a matter of I'm concerned about you if you don't want to read it or don't read it. I'm concerned about you if you're not using the word in your daily life. It, the, the pastor mentored me, says we have to understand something. The God who created us gave us a user's manual. Here it is. Are we going to read it? Are we going to do it? Are we going to hear the word and obey the word? If we do that, we have to be doing that from the right motive. 
Are we going to read the word to get to know the author of the word so that we might be pleasing to him in all that we do? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for your law. As David professes and writes in the Psalms, we love your law. We love your word, and we're so grateful that you've given it to us, that you preserved it, that we have so many copies, so many good versions and translations of it to read, to memorize, to study, because we know that in your word, you reveal yourself to us. Father, I do pray you would continue by the use of your word, by your spirit, to conform us to the image of your son, to make us more and more like him. May we be imitators of him, just as he's taught us. That true imitation is loving you loving you with all that we are and all that we have. Pray that you would continue to work that in us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Pastor.